Dixon, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Steve Fuller, Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick. We will discuss his book, A Player's Guide to the po- Post-Truth Condition, The Name of the Game, which is published by Anthem Press. So welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. As you know, I'm a huge fan of <laughs> your work, um, which I have uh, cited to relentlessly, despite uh, my proclivities to uh, advocate otherwise. I know, so I know. A- <laughs> oh, you got to watch out for that. They'll call you a hypocrite. And they might not in, in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, I'm delighted to meet you and have you on the program to talk about your wonderful new book, which frankly is just like crammed with so many provocative ideas, we won't have a chance to even scratch the surface in this interview. Um, but, but for listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading your book yet, I wonder if you could start by telling people what you mean by post-truth and how the post-truth condition should affect the, the way we think about knowledge and the production of knowledge. Okay, well, So for people who aren't familiar with my position on post-truth, I guess the first thing to get some bearing on where I'm coming from is um, I don't think it's such a bad thing, okay? So that already puts me in a category by myself. Um, And uh, this book uh, that we're talking about, The Player's Guide, is actually a follow-up to a book that I I published in 2018 uh, called Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. And that kind of gets to kind of the core thesis um, and of course, uh, you know, from Francis Bacon and lots of other thinkers throughout the history of the modern era, you know, the idea of that knowledge is power has been kind of thrown around, right? I mean, it's even in Plato, basically. Um, but I do think that the post-truth condition, in a way, raises this kind of equation to a kind of new level. Uh, and uh, in, in the sense that in the past, when people talked about knowledge as power, they usually uh, had a, a fairly elite idea of the people who had the knowledge who therefore could wield the power. And so the issue then became, okay, who are these elite knowledge people? Are they people from religion? Are they people from science, right? Um, and of course, different kinds of answers get put forward over, you know, in the modern period. Um, but the, the question has kind of changed now because we now live in a period where more and more people are educated, more and more people have access to information generally, uh, not just through uh, the usual channels, the academic channels by which they get credentials and so forth, but also through the internet and, and other means. And of course, people are interacting with each other more than ever before. So the idea you know, of, of actually developing a kind of collective intelligence, right, where each node is kind of equally valuable. I mean, we're actually getting into that state of democratized knowledge, like it or not. Right. That is kind of the condition we're in. That's why I talk about it as the post-truth condition. And what that means then is that no one has a monopoly on knowledge by which they can then wield power in some kind of hierarchical top down manner. Right. Rather, the whole thing gets horizontalized. Um, and and so this is why we see a crisis in authority of, of all kinds of authority, uh, you know, so in politics and academia. Right. Uh, it, you know, in science more generally, you know, that there, 
that generally speaking, everyone wants in some sense to have a, a say, you might, you know, you might say, but not just a say, but in a sense, um, they want to think for themselves and actually decide for themselves what it is exactly they believe about all kinds of things. And because they also understand that the track record of all the people who have in the past been the elites, who have been the, you know, the epistemic superordinate powers, right, have in fact not been perfect, less than perfect, right? Uh, That is also known. And so that kind of fallibility of the elites also plays in to this self-empowerment that we're now seeing. And this is how you get the post-truth condition, right? And it is, you know, if you want to, you know, anarchy might be a strong way of putting it, uh, but, but it's heading in that direction in a sense, um, and and I and, and I don't see this. And, and here's the crucial point: is I don't see this as a pathology. Okay, this is not a pathology. This is what democracy looks like if you take it seriously. And the problem is, a lot of people who've been talking about democracy over the last two thousand years, right, really didn't know what they were asking for. Okay, but this is it, people. This is it. Um, and and so I don't see the you know. So while Donald Trump may be out of office. Right. Fine. Right. Uh, The kind of attitude. Right. The kind of anti-expertism. Right. You know, this kind of disrespect of authority. Right. That is so much his calling card. That's not going away. Okay, Uh, it may be sublimated. It may become disciplined in some way. It may become institutionalized in some acceptable way, but it isn't going away. So people who start with the assumption that post-truth is somehow anti-truth. It's something we have to get rid of. It's a temporary blip on the screen. No, this is the world that we've always wanted from democracy. It's just that we didn't realize what it was we were asking for. (laughs) Well, so I wonder if you could talk about the post-truth condition specifically in relation to academia and the academic enterprise, because it seems like it poses a kind of challenge to that enterprise, at least as traditionally conceived? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a sense in which um, in the secular world, um, academia has kind of replaced the church, um, you know, in terms of being the kind of the, the, the mainstream through which people get credentialed to do all the kind of important work that gets done in society, right? And universities in the modern period have increasingly assumed this role. And in fact, universities would not be these large some might argue, bloated institutions that they are today, were it not for the fact that most of the time what we're doing is credentialing people. We're not necessarily educating them, but rather we're giving them license to do other things in society, right? And in this regard, you know, it's it's like putting holy water on them when they get a degree. Um, and it seems to me that this kind of significance of, of, of academia, where we talk about our, our living in a knowledge society, where academia is, is kind of front and center, Um, It seems to me this is the kind of thing that's being challenged today. And it's being challenged, you know, again, in a sort of ironic way from the fact that a lot of these all these people who we have been training for all these years now, right, do end up thinking independently. And part of their independent thinking involves challenging the assumptions of the sorts of things they had been taught. Uh, and, And so this then leads them to think, well, you know, why do I continue to support this institution? Um, and, and one of the things that we're seeing practically now is, in fact, we're getting alternative ways of credentialing people that do not involve the university, 
Uh, and I think the more and more that happens, and also the more and more that research is done outside the university, right, where there are private contractors and so forth, who have a kind of independent existence and their own source of legitimacy, right, the university ends up getting hollowed out as an institution, right, um, and, and becomes, it, 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 it puts itself in a, in a very kind of difficult situation about how it goes forward, right? So the decline of the university is, in a sense, a decline of this kind of hierarchical hierarchical notion of knowledge, right, that then wields power that has been so much the, the centerpiece, um, you know, of, of the modern era. So I can't help wondering whether you think academics should resist or embrace the post-truth condition and i guess sort of if the latter what would what would that mean and what would it look like and it, is it even possible within sort of the way we think about the academic enterprise today uh, so here's a couple of things i would say about that um one of the ways in which uh universities over the because universities have been institute one of the interesting things about universities of course is they've been around for a long time um, and, and it's interesting to see how they've managed to adapt to change, uh, right, uh, because, um, the, you know, they've, they've, universities have faced all kinds of challenges before, and not just political challenges in the, in the sense of censorship, but they've also, you know, the Industrial Revolution was a challenge to universities in the early 19th century, right? Right, when we started to see that the kind of knowledge that was actually producing genuine sustainable wealth was coming not from people who were trained in holy orders, but were from these inventors who went to mechanics colleges, right? I mean, this became very obvious in the early 19th century, and yet somehow universities managed to recover that, though it took them pretty much most of the 19th century to do that. Um, and, and so it is possible that universities can recover, but what they have to do uh, is, in a sense, to kind of take seriously the kind of knowledge that's actually being generated, let's say, online, Right. And not just dismiss it out of hand as just being biased and fake and echo chambers and all the rest of it. In fact, we should be thinking about echo chambers and, and filter bubbles as cultures. Right. I mean, we don't disrespect cultures. Right. Just because they're different from us. Well, in a sense, filter bubbles and echo chambers are cultures, too. And so there's a sense in which academics need to have a little rather than having this kind of antagonistic stance toward the Internet and toward the uh, non-academic culture, because it's challenging a lot of its prerogatives, academics need to take a more detached stance toward it and, in fact, think about normative structures in which they themselves can function and also all these non-academic agents can function, right? And that is where universities have always been their strongest, has been to, as it were, rise above the occasion in which they are competitors, okay? And that is, in fact, what happened uh, in the Industrial Revolution, right? So it was quite clear that Oxford and Cambridge were not going to match the mechanics colleges with regard to creating machines, right, and inventions, right? Guys who, you know, people who, who graduated from those places just aren't in that market, right? But what they might be able to do is explain why those things work as well as they do and how they might be able to work better, right, if you have some general understanding of scientific principles, Right. And this is where the training in science and mathematics and stuff like that actually starts to have some purchase and eventually filters down into the development of fields like engineering and medicine and so and so forth. OK, so the academic culture was able to reinvent itself in the face of all these radical challenges to its legitimacy. Right. And now the radical challenges are coming from the information technology side of things. You're right. And, and so, you know, in a sense, Silicon Valley is the new Manchester. 
right? Uh, and, and, and in a sense, we need to reinvent ourselves in light of that, but not take an, a hostile, antagonistic view that somehow they are the other. Mm. Well, so you introduce a lot of really fascinating and provocative concepts in, in, your, in this book and in other works of yours that, that I've read. One term that you use that I've found particularly interesting is academic rentiership. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, if you, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is and how you think it plays into the way we conceptualize the academic enterprise and sort of what we ought to do about it. Well, I think, the, look, at the end of the day, um, like it or not, and, and academics will be the, the last to want to admit this, uh, we are basically rent seekers in a, in a sense, uh, and we have lots of ways of um, of maintaining that status. So, um, so the first thing that happens is that usually uh, a form of a form of knowledge gets invented or developed somewhere, uh, very often outside of academia, right? But then what academics do is they they capture it, they capture it conceptually, and what that means is that puts it into their their web, the things they can understand, and then as it were, they brand it. Right. And not only do they brand it, they use the branding exercise as a way of reproducing it more effectively than anyone else can, because the academics already have a kind of pipeline to training people. Right. Because, academ you know, academia being kind of the main vehicle by which people by which society is reproduced in terms of credentials. Right. Academics are, in fact, in the most socially secure place to actually colonize knowledge from the outside, reproduce it and make it its own by incorporating it into its own kind of networks, its own traditions, and, and academic writing, as you know, right, uh, facilitates this in a very easy way, because basically your, your, your legitimacy uh, as an academic author comes from who you cite, right? So you can, you create this kind of paper trail, citation trail, right, which, which in a way deepens the kind of monopoly hold that the academic culture has over a piece of knowledge, so that people start to think that the only way you can know something is by going through, through all this academic paper trail. Whereas, in fact, this is not really the case, right? But the point is, no one's going to recognize you as having that knowledge unless you go through that academic paper trail, which means that there are entry costs of all kinds, costs a lot of money to go to university, right? Then when you get to university, you're going to have to learn all of this, you know, screwy, abstract, conceptual language that, you know, academics use as their calling card, right? You're going to have to reproduce that in your exams, right? Uh, and then, you know, if you get successful, right, you, you're, you're kind of... You, you have to kind of reproduce it yourself if you become an academic, right? Now, you may not want to become an academic, but look at all the academic rigmarole you have to go through, right, in order to get the kinds of accreditation as someone who knows something. That is rentiership, right? Because you, you, have, to, you have so many hoops you have to jump through, right? And that's because the way the society is organized, everyone is, has to go through this mechanism. Right. Otherwise, they're not recognized. Right. Now, this is something that we as academics, um, you know, valorize in a sense because we think we're enlightening people and stuff like that. But in fact, the way we end up doing it, where people are, you know, dragged out into schooling for an incredibly long period of time. Right. Where the academic culture itself has become more and more esoteric. Right. It becomes harder and harder to actually get into any field. Right. In order, un unless you learn a lot of other stuff beforehand. Right. All of this creates a kind of monopoly condition with regard to, to knowledge. Right. Which effectively makes academics rentiership, uh, rentiers. And the problem is, what do we do? We call it complexity. 
right? We call it complexity. We call it a necessary consequence of the intellectual division of labor, right? That we have to have all these different people doing all these different things, right? I mean, I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous, uh, you know. And so, what they're what academics end up doing is promoting a world, right, in which experts govern everything, and experts are and experts, of course, are governing less and less. Right. So that there's more deference in the world between the experts and the rest of the public are just holding the bag. Okay, and it seems to me this is not a sustainable condition, especially if we're talking about public funding. Right. Because public funding. Right. If this were all privately done and this was some conspiracy by a bunch of academics trying to take over the world, that would be fine. Okay, but we're talking about this is publicly funded. Right. So, So why should there be public funding? For, for institutions that effectively are enforcing rents on everyone. It strikes me as one especially cutting example of a broader tendency, you note, of academics to develop and apply critiques to everyone and everything except their own enterprise. And there was one... <clears throat> sorry. There was one example you gave in your book that I found especially interesting, which was the, uh, the Alan Sokol hoax. And you provide a perspective on that that I'll be honest had not occurred to me, but which I really quite liked and sort of changed the way I thought about that episode. And I wonder if you could share that and you're thinking about it with listeners. So for those of you who don't know what um, what this was about, the Sokol hoax, though, though it's been revived in recent years, um, so, and, and I was involved in it because I, I had an article in the issue that was hoaxed. Of, of, so here, what we're we talking about. So there's this guy, Alan Sokol, who was a physicist, who is a physicist at New York University. Um, and, um, and, and he was one of the guys, again, some of your younger listeners may not remember, but there was this thing called the Science Wars back in the 1990s. And a lot, ha- and, and, and this was, if you want to put what the Science Wars were about in context, it was very much about, you might say the, um, the uh, it was a kind of ideological effect of the meltdown of the co- uh, of the post Cold War economy, which had been s- that w- in which the state and the public had been so focused on supporting science and technology. But once the Soviet Union disappeared, people started asking very fundamental kinds of questions about what, why why should the state be funding science and technology if all it does is support high tech stuff that relatively few people benefit from i mean it's fine when we think there's going to be a nuclear war but if we don't think there's going to be a nuclear war why should we still do it right so in this context the united states government and all kinds of governments around the world that suffered massive deficits from having invested in the cold war were now thinking about cutting budgets and science was on the chopping block okay uh, and physics in particular uh, and, and and so the science wars, in a way, comes from that kind of background. And meanwhile, as part of this, a kind of parallel development was this field of science and technology studies, which in a way takes a kind of a critical view, uh, you might say, of science and technology in the sense that it doesn't necessarily trust the scientist's self-understanding of the field. Right. So in other words, um, and, and I'm part of this field. Okay, so I am one reason why I was involved in the science wars, because I'm actually part of this field. Um, And and so this field tended to have a kind of demystifying effect on science and technology. And basically what that means is that uh, science and technology is a social, political, economic activity, just like everything else. Right. I mean, the details are different, but in terms of the general way you understand the dynamics, not so different. Okay, 
Um, and, 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 and this was the thing that a lot of scientists were, were, were objecting to. Uh, because this, this, if you take this kind of view, the science and technology studies view seriously, um, you end up asking the usual questions you ask about uh, fairly elite kinds of activities, right? Uh, the, you know, is there sufficient representation of alternative viewpoints, you know, gender, race, blah, 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 class, right? All these things become very prominent in the discussion about the legitimacy of science, which scientists weren't used to talking about. Okay, so this is how you get the science wars. So there's this one cultural studies journal, which was at the time the leading uh, journal uh, in the field in North America called Social Text. Um, and, and it turns out that Sokol, this physicist at New York University, was actually a friend of, the, of one of the editors of this journal, uh, Andrew Ross. Uh, and, and, um, and so he managed to slip by, uh, you know, to this, uh, ed- to this journal, uh, an article a very long article, I should add, I mean, for those of you who have not seen it, it was all about the transgressive hermeneutics of quantum gravity or something like this, right? Um, and what he was basically arguing, and it was very much in the style of a lot of the kind of, you know, deconstructionist French thinkers that were that, that probably were at their heyday uh, in, in the English-speaking world at the time, um, you know, where there would be this use of scientific and mathematical language, but reading very radical implications into it, Right. Um, and, and kind of making it look as though, you know, everything is kind of on the same page, right? Uh, and um, and so basically what Sokol did was he wrote an article in that style where he planted a lot of nonsensical stuff, um, right, uh, which, uh, which sounded fine to the editors because they weren't professional physicists or mathematicians or anything, right? Um, now, the thing that I'm pointing out about this, right, was... Um, not only did he do this, right, um, but he immediately, once the thing was published, he went to the New York Times, okay? And, and he told, because I know this, because the New York Times called me as soon as this thing came out um, and, 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 and asked for my uh, opinion on it. And I thought, wow. At the time, I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting move. Not only does he spoof them, but he gets ahead of the story. He gets ahead of the story by saying, I spoofed these clowns. And, and, and it worked. It worked because, and, and this is the thing I find so disappointing about all these radical, progressive, social constructivist guys that I'm aligned with, is that these guys didn't stick by their guns. Because if they stuck by their guns, they would have said, what? The author is dead. Why is Alan Sokol in charge of masterminding the interpretation of his text? How does he know this text is a hoax? This text may be... Genius will only know it in retrospect based on the communities that it attracts, right, that derive something from it. That would be the standard line. But they didn't adopt that. They immediately regressed, right, to some kind of idea, oh, the author's in charge of the interpretation of his text. And so Sokol basically masterminded this. He got the New York Times on board, and the people on our side just rolled over, basically, they said, oh, my God, we need to get physicists on board to, you know, peer review articles that have references to physics in the future, blah, blah, blah. Right. And all of a sudden, all these so-called social constructivist anti-realists became metaphysical realists. Right. And this and 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 so now we have this we, uh, in the last couple of years, we have a, a, a series of hoaxes called Sokol Squared. We're, we're, we're a group of very enterprising people who are now very much upset with the kind of political correctness culture we live in now, right, uh, decided to send something like, I don't know, 20 articles to different journals, 
Exactly in the same way as Sokol did with his one article. They said 20 of them, right? Um, and, and several of them got published and, and a few got rejected and several were still under consideration. But then they immediately go. They, they put videos on YouTube. They go to the Wall Street Journal, right? They, 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 they immediately, as soon as stuff gets accepted, aha, aha, right? Uh, and, and again, the same thing happens, right? They could, they control the spin. Now, this is very interesting because this is a tactic. Now, you might say this is great public relations, and it is, but it's also a tactic that scientists normally use even when they're not hoaxing, right? And this is kind of the, one of the points that I'm making in that book, right? That it is very common today, right, that scientists, even when their articles are in peer review, right, before they've actually been accepted, but they know it's being considered and there's a good chance it might be accepted, they're already out there advertising what the article's about. Right. They're already pushing it. They're already pushing the implications of it because they're thinking about writing their next research grant. Right. And they want to, you know, get funding going. Right. They're creating kind of the forward momentum. You know, so they're creating what is the likely implications of what I have yet to publish. Right. This is this. This is the world of real science. So-called real science operates this way. And so so so, you know, this is kind of the point I'm making the book. Right. Is that. That, that, you know, this, the, the, the Sokol hoax thing really revealed a lot, but just as much about the way science normally works, right, as any kind of weird kind of incompetence that might have been involved in a cultural studies journal, which I think is completely secondary to any of this. What's more interesting is the way that getting ahead of the story is really um, kind of the thing that matters in science just as much as it does in any kind of public relations. So in some respects, reading your book, I felt like one of the big themes was sort of almost like daring ourselves as academics to have the courage of our convictions and to actually take seriously and apply to ourselves the ideas that we otherwise apply to others. Is that a fair assessment of at least part of the project? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, um, you know, so um, one of, one of uh one of my uh, pet peeves, you might say, that transcend the books um, is this, because um, for those you know people who, uh, who spend their lives in the humanities and social sciences knows that you can't actually be in these fields unless you're critical, right? Critical. You know, that's, that's the thing. You know, you got to be critical. Um, and, you know, look, I know something about, crit- about the history of criticism. Criticism doesn't matter unless the criticized thing or person recognizes the criticism, okay? So the point here is that criticism is not just something that critics talk about amongst themselves, all right? You know, I mean, that's just, I don't know what that is. That's like gossip or something. That's not criticism, right? If, if the only people who understand the, crit, you know, the criticism that you're writing about, whether you're talking about the criticism, you know, criticism of capitalism, criticism of Trump, criticism of whatever, you know, capitalism, populism, right? I mean, we've got critics of everything these days. Everything that exists is criticized in academic culture, right? Nothing's left standing. You know, fortunate for the things being criticized, none of it ever gets outside the academy. Um, you know, uh, no, and, and the reason why it doesn't get outside the academy is because basically the academics don't know how to communicate, right? And, 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 here's, the, and here's the nub, and this is you know, going to the point of your question, there is no incentive in academia to communicate outside of itself, right? And this goes back to the rentiership and how you maintain the rentiership culture. 
right, is basically academics need to be citing each other, right? So unless you can find someone in the academy that actually represents the thing you're criticizing, right, and then you might get a debate going, right? But that rarely happens, actually, because people in the, you know, because what's being criticized is usually at such a coarse grain level, right, both, you know, from the standpoint of, of, of the object, right, that nobody in the academy actually recognizes it, right? So, um, and so you, what you end up getting, again, are filter bubbles, echo chambers, cultures, if you will, of academics who are critics, basically just talking to each other, and the object of criticism carries on. I mean, this is what, what do you suppose academia was complete? Academia spent most of my career criticizing neoliberalism and got blindsided by populism. <laughs> so we're living in a kind of unique historical moment right now in which a lot of things feel different just because our everyday lives have been impacted in, in ways we didn't expect, I think by the by the current pandemic do you think that this pandemic moment is in any way going to cause people to see or experience the post truth condition differently than they otherwise would it's possible i mean um i mean in a way uh i mean i let's put it this way i hope so because generally speaking um you know catastrophes like this, right? These kind of massive globally affecting events, which don't happen that often. I mean, parts of the world are always being affected by catastrophe, but the whole idea of the whole globe being affected by catastrophe, short of climate change, right, is not something that we normally think about. So there's a real opportunity here in terms of the pandemic uh, to think very fundamentally about things, right? So for example, um, given that the kinds of, you know, given that the, the, the coronavirus is a respiratory ailment, Right. And the reason why these things proliferate so much is because of environmental conditions. Right. Not only environmental conditions, you know, relating to uh, bats, you know, and all that jazz, uh, but but also in terms of just, you know, air pollution. Right. And, and, and all of this kind of ambient stuff that is a byproduct of the industrial civilization that we live in. Right. There is an opportunity here actually to go green in a major way. OK. And I do. Th- I mean, you know, so if you want to talk about something kind of positive on the horizon, um, and, and I think several commentators have pointed this out, right, is that a lot of changes that kind of everyone knows that we ought to be making, like going greener in terms of, um, in terms of uh, you know, sources of energy might be accelerated, right, um, and as a result of this. And, uh, but the, but the, 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 but the problem here is um, who's taking the lead? Who's going to take the lead on this exactly? Um, and in the book, I suggest briefly, uh, in a passing remark, uh, that China um, actually is uh, in, in the best position in the world to do that, and maybe even, as it were, has the greatest motivation for doing it. Um, first of all, because of the authoritarian structure, right, the, uh, the, the whole business community and the state are very much closely tied. There isn't a lot of jockeying around and negotiating, because the problem with liberal democracies is that you have this kind of disaggregated relationship between the state and, and, and the economic sector, you know, and so there's always a lot of pussyfooting around that makes it difficult to accomplish anything. Okay. But what China could take advantage of its authoritarian structure. And also China is likely to be uh, the developed country that is going to be least affected by the pandemic in terms of economic growth. Um, and so there isn't going to be as much as it were recovery 
right, of the sort that we're seeing in the West now, where everybody's thinking about how are we going to, you know, get all these people employed again? How are we going to, you know, there's, there's already this kind of everybody's thinking and thinking about this very much in a sort of New Deal style, right? Um, which, which is nothing wrong with the New Deal, of course. But it seems to me that what, what would really be interesting would be to use this catastrophe as an opportunity to make a step change, to just move in a totally different direction, right? Um, and if China were to do that, if China were to go green and, let's say, invest very heavily in uh, infrastructures involving, you know, uh, electric cars and things like that, um, that would send a serious signal, right? Especially given that, that China does have a lot of influence, you know, uh, o- you know, over the non-Western world uh, increasingly. And so in terms of those countries, especially the ones that are just developing their infrastructures now, uh, Africa, I'm thinking about Latin America, um, you know, that, 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 that could make a big difference. That, that could be very positive development. But, 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 I, but I would see the action coming from China because I think in the case of the United States and Europe, it's, you know, it's going to be too much about recovery and, and there are going to be so many special interests that will have to be negotiated. So we'll see how far Biden gets in his pr- program. No, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I wish the man the best. But 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 God Almighty, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard in the West to get get things done. But China could get something done. So there is a possibility there. But of course, there are all kinds of then political downstream effects if China were to succeed in this, right? Which has to do with people questioning yet again, more deeply, what is the value of liberal democracy, right? I mean, because because if China does succeed in doing what I'm suggesting then that gets put on the table in a much more robust way. I mean, it's already clear China is pushing back from any kind of human rights stuff, right? Whenever that gets thrown in its face, like, human rights, don't tell me about it. What have you guys done lately for human rights? Right? I mean, you know, China has this way of just rebuffing everything. Um, and, and so all it needs is to have a real strong win on the economic recovery front with regard to alternative energy. Um, and then it's in a strong position. But then, look, I, you know, I'm not consulting for the Chinese government. I don't know how these guys think. But I'm just saying, if you want to know where a real substantial transformation could occur, my guess would be China. Well, so, Steve, in closing, kind of turning the question or the camera, as it were, back on ourselves as academics, you know, for listeners who, like me, are themselves academics – if we want to embrace and kind of um, accept the post-truth condition that you're describing, how can we do that? Well, I mean, actually, some of it is pretty simple, to be honest with you. I mean, I mean, I think uh, in a way, the, the problem is the incentive structures to do it. But I'll tell you what it is. I mean, so like simple stuff, like when you teach, right? Teach in the way we're speaking. Right. Even if you're assigning students, you know, texts where there's all this esoteric technical language going on. Right. The way you you teach. Right. Is by conveying what's in those texts in a way that you can embody it. Right. It makes it look like it's coming from a human being. Right. Not from a machine. Right. This is why, for example, I really hate PowerPoint. I hate a lot of a lot of the technological mediation. Right. Um really ends up in a way reinforcing what is exactly wrong with academic culture. The only difference is it makes it easier to replace the academics. But the, but what's bad about the culture remains, right? Because what's bad about the culture is this highly structured, technical way of presenting things, which makes it look like academic knowledge is somehow the other from the way people normally think about things, okay? Um, 
And the point is, if we want academic knowledge to have any kind of impact on people, then we have to embody it as real people, right? We have to actually act as if the kind of stuff that we spend our lives studying actually is worth thinking about, right? It's not just something you have to tell students because they need to pass an exam so they can get a credential, right? You know, I mean, no, it, it really has to be something you embody. They have to be convinced, right, that this is you know, this is something they should think about. So in other words, you really do need to pop, you you have to popularize this stuff. I mean, you really do. You actually have to make your students think, you have to persuade them, right, that what you're talking about matters more than just the exam. And of course, this I think would have knock-on effects in terms of how you think about the way students should write papers and, you know, you know, show, demonstrate their, their mastery of the material. Because again, we have to move away from the idea that, you know, basically, you know, you teach students talking in a technical lingo that nobody in their right mind talks, right? And then they have to reproduce that in exam. No wonder they forget the material once they're finished, right? This is how academic culture looks like rentiership because it is this kind of bad dream you have to go through before you get somewhere meaningful. And it seems to me this is the way we are constantly stabbing ourselves in the back and we got to get over this. The problem is there's no incentive in academic culture to do this. The incentives move in the opposite direction. They move toward, in fact, greater technicality, right? Greater kind of distance, as it were, right? From, you know, so the more sophisticated, the more intelligent, the more you know, right? The better, the better you are, you know, especially if it's really hard to figure out what you're saying. Um, and we have to move away from that, right? People should be impressed by our knowledge because it does something for them. Oh, my God. I love it. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. I l really enjoyed reading this book just as I've always enjoyed all of your other work and it was a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, I hope I can have you back on the show when your new book comes out. Yeah, well, that'd be great. Yes, and thanks for having me. This is very, very interesting and I hope your listeners find it uh, interesting as well. Mm -hmm.